I would like to begin by first of all welcoming you all to our COVID-19 Reframing Aging webinar. I'd like to welcome our panelists, our chairs, and above all, our very large audience. We've had over 300 registrations for this event. My name is Anne Fuchs. I'm a professor of German studies at UCD, and I'm currently the, the director of the UCD Humanities Institute, and I will chair the first panel today. Before I say a few introductory words and introduce my fellow chairs and the first panelist, I would like to run through a very few important practical issues. So we will have four panels of about 25 minutes duration each. Brief statements by our panel members will be followed by a short discussion. You as the audience can feed your questions into the discussion by using the chat function on Zoom. So for technical reasons, members of the audience will be on silent throughout the webinar. This webinar will be recorded and made available on the UCD Framing Aging website, where you can also find further information about the project and the other contributors. At this point, I would like to thank my HI team, uh, Ricky and Valerie, who have prepared this uh, webinar with their usual care and attention. So just a little bit about the background. I'm the uh, lead investigator of the Wellcome Trust funded project Framing Aging, a clinical, cultural and social dialogue. My own research focuses on the intricate connections between individual, collective and cultural memory and narrative. Framing Aging, a clinical, cultural and social dialogue is an interdisciplinary project in collaboration with the TCD Medical Humanities Network and many colleagues in Ireland, the United Kingdom, continental Europe, and the United States. You will meet and hear some of these colleagues later on. Our project aims to facilitate dialogue between gerontologists, geriatricians, humanities researchers, social scientists, and practitioners who can benefit from collaboration. A key aim is to create a network that liberates the field from the constraints of prevailing pathological models of aging. COVID-19 has both disrupted and focused our conversation about aging. From an early point, the discourse on COVID-19 and older people was controversial and very troubling. While the intent was to protect an older age cohort from infection and likely death, this well-intended policy resulted in severely restricted freedom and mobility over an extended period of time, causing mental and other health issues. Against this backdrop, our webinar will ask the following question. What are the blind spots and biases that COVID-19 has revealed in public discourse, in political rhetoric and narratives of experience? Now, let me briefly introduce my fellow chairs and co-investigators in this project. Desmond O'Neill is professor of medical gerontology at Trinity College Dublin and the Royal College of Surgeons. His research centers on gerontology and the neurosciences with a very strong emphasis on the humanities. Mary Cosgrove is professor of German at Trinity College Dublin. She is the co-chair of the Medical and Health Humanities Research Network in TCD, and her research interests include cultural memory, trauma, melancholy, and depression. 
Julia Langbein is a postdoctoral research fellow in Trinity College. She is an art historian with a focus on 19th century art history, and she is currently working on a monograph entitled Aging in the Age of Modernism. So these, this, these are the chairs who will guide you through today's proceedings. Now, let's start with our first panel with Alva Smith. It's my very great pleasure to introduce Alva a former cherished colleague and, of course, renowned LGBTQ plus and women's rights advocate. She was the head of women's studies in UCD from 1990 to 2006 and a spokeswoman and convener for the Coalition to Repeal the Eighth Amendment. She was also a founding member of Marriage Equality, convener of the Feminist Open Forum and the former chair of the National LGBT Federation, amongst many other public roles. Alva, you're very welcome. I'm delighted that you accepted our invitation to contribute to our webinar. So could I now please hand over to you and uh, ask you to open with your reflective statement. Well, hello, everybody. And thank you very much, Anna, for that lovely introduction. I'm absolutely delighted uh, to be here. This uh, little piece, rather than a statement, is called Unseen, Unheard, Untouched, A View from the Interior. Isolation is a continuing experience for me at present, so this is very personal and also very raw. It's 93 days since I felt a hand in mine at my back or on my shoulder, all that time without feeling warm breath the smell of a small child's hot, damp hand, the, the embrace of someone I love, linking arms with a friend, the contiguity of the world. During the first weeks of confinement, I found myself wondering if for those of us who live alone, and we are many, at least a quarter of over 65s live alone in Ireland, rising sharply for those in their 80s and 90s. The absence of human touch is not the greatest deprivation. My friend said, isn't it great we have Zoom? What a difference the internet makes. We can meet up for a chat, and we do, but it's not the same. Virtual touch is the ultimate oxymoron, leaving me with an ineffable want, a need, and an ache. Sometimes, like a child, I pinch myself just to prove I can still feel something. Mind you, it's better than the silent void. Over half of older adults in Ireland have never been online, which is a shocking lockout. Unspeaking, unheard, untouched, unseen, incommunicado. There is a terrible depth of loneliness beneath the numbers. Calls of distress to organisations for older people shoot up. Visits to nursing homes are prohibited. In hospitals, deathbed farewells are made via Facebook or Zoom. Relatives stand in graveyards two metres apart as they bury their dead. The impact of isolation and the deprivation of touch is starkly exposed in the excess rate of deaths of dementia sufferers in care homes, which was revealed recently in the UK. It turns out that inter alia, hugging is an essential component of life, and in Ireland too. Older people have been cut off from the most basic quotidian activities, shopping, going for a walk, greeting neighbours, getting on the bus. There's no law here against these things, but the tone of government advice is unmistakably monetary. You must, you will, you must not, you must not. 
many older people are cowed into acquiescence, believing they may be fined for leaving their homes and terrified to put so much as their noses outside the front doors for fear of breaking the law and therefore catching the COVID. This is incarceration, although we're guilty of no crime other than to be our age. That's the problem. Being old is high risk. Being very old is very high risk. Other people, especially children, they said, are dangerous, potentially fatal. The only way to protect you is to lock you up for your own good. We older people are well aware of the danger a global fatality rate for the over 80s, five times higher than the average, over 60 over 65s, accounting for 90% of all COVID-19 deaths in Ireland. We're not likely, actually, to be taking risks. From another perspective, ours, we're not the problem. You out there are the problem. We need you to stand back and not engage in risky behaviours that could endanger our lives. We know there's a balance to be achieved here. But in Ireland, there was to be no balance. We got locked up. They didn't call it that. The word was cocooning. Over 70s were to be wrapped in cotton wool, put into hibernation, minimally fed and watered and forgotten about for the duration. There would be no regard for the wide inequalities and variations in the lives and circumstances of older people. No special financial or social care provision needed to be made. So weren't we all safe in our own homes? Didn't we all have the pension? Weren't we all able to look after ourselves despite being cut off from our families, friends, carers, social networks? Eventually, the fuel allowance was extended to pensioners. That was it. Older people were on their own with our frustration, fear, loneliness, deprivation. The world had more important business to be getting on with for its own good. It would be inconvenient to have to be looking after us and to have us clogging up the hospitals. Indeed, difficult choices might have to be made. They didn't think to consult us. Nefesh, the decision-making body, had no members over 70 and no representative organisations were consulted either. It was quick march, get them out of the way, stack them up where they can come to no harm, hugger-mugger, and it will all be grand. But it wasn't, and it isn't. That patronising word cocooning, its effect perfectly captured by our precedent as infantilising, tells an unwitting truth about our society's ambivalent attitudes towards older age. We pay lip service to the venerable status, wisdom and experience of older people, but we don't want to be old ourselves. And we don't want to, to, be, to be reminded that one day we will be. We are obsessed with youth, or more precisely, with not ageing. It's hard to see how such a society can not be ageist. There is any number, of course, of crises confronting our post-pandemic world. In fact, already erupting all around, even as we speak. One mentioned, surprisingly rarely, but of immense importance, in my view, is the crisis of care. As the virus cuts swathes across the planet, mowing down all in its brutal wake, the response from country after country was to counter it with care. Because despite our braggadocio, we're not masters of the universe after all. The only weapon we had to slow it down, if not to actually halt it, was care. Care by, care for and care of people. 
But Ireland failed catastrophically, though not uniquely, in its duty of care to protect older people, especially those in nursing and care homes. The numbers are shocking. 62% of COVID-19 deaths in Ireland are associated with care homes, and that's reckoned to be the second highest rate in the world. The scandal is that for months there was no protection for people living in these settings, despite the example of other countries and the endless pleas and requests from uh, nursing and care home management. This was a failure which borders on refusal to recognise the extreme vulnerability to COVID-19 of the frailest people in our society. Their needs were not at the bottom of the pile. They were simply not seen at all. That is a disgrace and it raises far-reaching questions about our attitudes to people in older old age in particular and indeed to all those who are frail, debilitated or disabled. About how we shunt their care out of our homes, out of our sight, out of our minds, into places apart which one can only think of as dying houses. Ireland is not unique in this contemporary appalling practice. It is our collective responsibility to ensure that such a careless catastrophe never happens again. To conclude, a while ago I was in a photography class where we had to make a family portrait, interpreting family however we wished. I photographed myself sitting on a chair with a paper bag over my head and called it not in the picture. That was how I experienced my life as a lesbian at the time. That has changed in Ireland and I can now be out and proud of my sexuality. But the paper bag experience still applies in many contexts, including, I fear, the one I am now currently in, that of older person. That makes me both sad and angry and full of a desire to resist the ageism which can only have been exacerbated by this awful pandemic. We need to change that and I think we need, in the words of Laura Carsterson, a new map of life and we need it fast. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much Alba for your thought-provoking um, narrative which was really a personal journey from a sense of isolation to a much broader political picture in terms of how we stigmatize old age and how we deal with it through policies that kind of um, yeah um, close people away in, in institutions where we don't see them any longer. Uh, can I invite comments from from uh, the other panelists while I look at the chat function to see whether our audience would like to ask Alva a question or two. Yeah, just thanks very much, Alva. That's very heartfelt and it's very authentic. And I think it catches, uh, you've, I think you've used most of my talk for the next talk, but um, it was also very encouraging you to hear you quoting a very eminent gerontologist, uh, Laura Carstensen, who I think is one of the people who's teased out the opportunities for meaning and emotional richness in later life. And I think you've pointed out a theme which we're going to hear again and again, both from the humanity side and from the gerontology side of this ridiculous homogenization of the most varied, the richest, the most underexplored time of life and our failure to identify with it. And I'll just throw out one little hook. You mentioned older people's organizations. They won't happen 
until we as older people and as we get older identify with and are proud of being old. And recently on Irish radio, a very well-known commentator over 70 was doing fine until she started talking about the elderly. So I think our biggest challenge for all of us is to identify with and to become proud of aging. And hopefully over the session, we'll develop some of the dialogue that'll help us to do that. Yeah. Thank you for that, Des. Um, I, can I come in here and, and, and explore attention in your talk? On the one hand, um, you, you rightly um, commented, commented on the tone of government advice, which was patronizing and in fact infantilizing, especially mm -hmm. since it didn't include the age group that was being talked about. And on the other hand, you also concluded your talk by saying that in spite of kind of this, this advice, this cocooning advice, in fact, the whole um, COVID-19 has shown up a deep lack of care for uh, uh, the vulnerable in society. Can you, can you comment on that a bit more? Because there seems to be a tension because I'm sure that a government representative would defend uh, their policy and say, well, after all, we have protected you. We did bring the economy to a standstill. I leave it at that. Yes, no, no, and I think that's a very valid point. If I could just go back to, to Des's point first and say that actually I'm a member, I'm on the board of Age Action, and I, you know, made a very positive, or a very definitive, a real decision to, in a sense, come out as old, because I think it is actually very difficult. And when I was invited to then to accept to join that board and to be identified, but that weight of stigma is so great that people constantly say to me, oh, but you're not really old. And I say, well, I am actually 74, so what's wrong with that? But there is a desire to not age you, to have you not age yourself and so on and so forth. The tension, I think, is really, and I was very conscious, I should say that this this little paper was, I cut down by two thirds the, the complexity of what I was wanted to say, that that tension is one that I think we hold in our attitudes to aging. We want to protect on the one hand, um, but at the same time, we make decisions on behalf of those whom we want to protect and therefore deprive them of a sense of our own agency. We actively deprive them of agency. There is a fundamental assumption that um, older people could not have made that decision for themselves. And in fact, one of the things I did try to say was, well, actually, we are not stupid. We were already making that decision for ourselves and staying inside, which I had started to do, for example, along with many others I know before lockdown. So I think that that is a tension within the whole sort of set of cultural assumptions and attitudes that we hold about um, old age and which is indeed uh, you know, the, the language that's used, uh, which Des has already referred to, is a really good example. I mean, the elderly, you instantly see people stooped over with a stick, which does not represent, in fact, the majority of people who are in their 70s, their 80s, or even indeed in their 90s. So I think that it's working on that tension and in a way that contradiction, that really is one of the big challenges at the present time. Because the other thing you could have said to me was, well, what option did the government have? Mm -hmm. And there is a very real sense in which I see the logic of that. 
I think that there is some justification in saying they have to do what they did in the way that they did it. I mean, I don't think you should ever let democracy go by the board, but actually what happened in relation to nursing and care homes in fact demonstrates that complete inability or unwillingness to look at what happens to people in real life terms when they are older and what their needs actually are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sorry, terribly long answer. No, no, it's a very, very um, a good answer. And perhaps a, uh, a question that we can run across the panels is of course one that concerns the issue of generational solidarity because I feel very strongly that some of the debate, not all of it, set up a divide between the young and the old. And in fact, uh, what I think on the, on the positive upside of this crisis, we have seen the re-emergence of collective solidarity, uh, perhaps for the first time in decades. And perhaps we can build on this and turn this into social movements across the board. Black Lives Matter is at the back of everybody's mind at the moment as an example of, of, of um, a social transformation. And I think COVID-19 uh, is, of course, deeply connected with that. Okay, is, uh, if there are no other um, comments, let me just see. Um, I'll read out a, a couple of comments here. Alumni, an alumni is writing, as an older person at the beginning, it was to protect the hospital system and the lack of public health policy in action where Ireland has the highest percentage occupancy in acute hospitals. The WHO has a graph on their website showing the average occupancy is well into the 90% region. This is the justification. Yeah, okay, that's the background. Yeah, and then, uh, and to all panelists, there was no consideration given to the 70 plus who still work and the majority of volunteers are over 70 and do not consider themselves, themselves frail. That's a very good point. The, in fact, uh, reminding us of the massive contribution uh, the over 65 cohort makes to, to the economy every day of the week. Yeah? And uh, in terms of their professional expertise, childcare, social volunteering and so on. And uh, I don't have the figures to hand, but obviously that's uh, a very serious uh, uh, a point, which, was, uh, uh, which didn't feature prominently in the debate about COVID. Okay, <laughs> looking at the clock now, I think it is time to hand over to Des O'Neill, who will introduce the second panel. Before I do that, I want to uh, thank Alva for such a thought-provoking personal statement, which kind of interwove your personal uh, experience and, 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 and created a wonderful pattern of, of the bigger social issues. So thanks very much for doing that, Alba. And of course, you will cont continue to participate. So maybe we'll hear you later on again. Okay, Des. Thanks. Thanks, Anna. And thanks very much, Alva, for really setting a good start. We're really fortunate to have two major figures in gerontology, the studies of aging, as discussants now. Uh, Tom Scharf, Professor of Social Gerontology in Newcastle University, has unique experience of Irish, UK and international research and scholarship in ageing. He joined Newcastle in 2016, previously having been Director of the Irish Centre for Social Gerontology in Galway and hosted the hugely successful International Congress on Cultural Gerontology, which featured a number of the panel in Galway in 2015. He is current president of the British Society of Gerontology 
and sat on the advisory board of TILDA, the Irish Longitudinal Study on Ageing. We're equally delighted to have Paul Higgs, a major leader in the studies of ageing, joining us as a respondent to Alba. He is a professor of sociology of ageing at University College London, and his research interests have been notable for a major range of work conducted with Dr. Chris Gilliard, which has been published in a range of influential books over two decades, as well as many national and international research groupings, publishing extensively in social gerontology, medical sociology and sociology journals. So Tom, over to you. Hey, thanks very much. And it's lovely to be back connected to Ireland. Um, thanks, Des, for the introduction and especially Alva for um, such a really insightful introduction to the topic and um, we hope that we have a new recruit in social gerontology here. There's so much um, that we can learn from one another. I guess you know my response comes from a perspective in social gerontology and I think there's a lot to be said about the way in which age and aging has been framed over the course of um, the pandemic and that really this is a transition point in the field in which um, I'm working in terms of thinking about a pre-COVID gerontology and a post-COVID gerontology. Because what both of these versions of gerontology are going to have to really come to terms with, I think, is an issue that was raised in the opening talk is about the deep-seated ageism that's been exposed over the course of the pandemic. Now, what we've seen in the UK, I think, is a, in terms of a context that I'm most familiar with, is, you know, we're at the point where we've had over 63,000 so-called excess deaths, 90% of which have been of people aged 65 and over, over 20,000 deaths in care homes. So we have to really ask ourselves fundamental questions about what's gone wrong and why older people's lives don't appear to matter. And this takes us back in the field of gerontology, back, you know, 50 years on from what Robert Butler had to say about when he defined ageism, up to the contemporary time when um, colleagues Liat Ayalon and Clemens Tesch-Römer define age, ageism as being the complex, often negative construction of old age which takes place at the individual level and also at the societal level. And I think what has been confirmed by the pandemic is really is the broad acceptability of forms of ageism in the United Kingdom, but also obviously in many other countries. Um, and I think what's really striking is, you know, that those of us working in gerontology have challenged this for many years. But I think some of us have been taken aback by the speed and the extent to which ageist language has emerged and been accepted and the types of things that people have said about age and ageing over the course of the last three months. And here I'm you know, quite clear in pinning you know, substantial part of the, the blame you know, on um, UK government, but also on the ways in which the media have, are representing age and older people, certainly in the United Kingdom. And I think, you know, when we get to the point where we have a public inquiry in Britain, a real, a, you know, an independent public inquiry that explores 
what's gone on, what's gone wrong, they're going to have an awful lot of evidence that they're going to have to review that will support that basic idea of an institutionalized form of ageism. So in the UK, you know, the science that is guiding government comes through the scientific advisory group for emergencies. There aren't any geriat geriatricians on that group, certainly no social gerontologists. So the question is for a condition that is disproportionately affecting older people, you know, why is there no expertise on aging feeding in to the scientific decisions that are supposedly informing government decision making? We also see that those initial suggestions about restricting all people aged 70 and over to their homes really reveals that stunning lack of gerontological literacy that exists within government, meaning that many older people, as Alva mentioned straight off, are identified as group as, as being vulnerable. Many of these people now have spent three months locked down and a substantial proportion of those people probably needlessly locked down. And then we get the blanket use of chronological age that reinforces those negative stereotypes as old age as being equivalent to vulnerability, frailty, ill health, disability, proximity to death. Um, and, you know, government in the UK still hasn't given up on using chronological age as a policy tool. And that is evident in recent, um, yeah, recent communications around easing the lockdown. So just to you know, re-emphasize that point on institutionally based forms of ageism, we need look no further than what's been going on in care settings. Um, you know, the, the care homes have been neglected over many years. This isn't anything new, but the outcome is new in terms of the excess mortality. And we see an ageist response in you know, all, all aspects of government policy in relation to care settings. So it starts with releasing 25,000 people in the UK from hospitals into care homes without any type of testing for coronavirus, resulting in an enormous number of deaths. We see it in the casualized and underpaid care workers who have continued to move in and out of care homes, even when the risks of infection and cross-infection were known. Um, as far as I'm aware, people with loved ones in care homes are still unable to visit them and to contact them. Their relationships have been severely curtailed. Essentially, older people's lives have been shown not um, to matter. So just in drawing this, you know, yeah, five minute um, expose or a rant towards a close, I think, you know, the, and I haven't even got onto the topic of media uh, representations yet. I think, you know, that sense of something major has gone wrong, that we have to use this, however, in the future as an opportunity to do something much better. Thanks very much. No, that catches and you brought us to framing very much for this reframing uh, symposium. Great. Paul, over to you. 
Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to this uh, conference. And it's a very fascinating and timely uh, moment in you know, the understanding of aging and the kind of uh, would, would you like me to continue yep. with my uh, <laughs> <laughs> bits that I didn't get to say about the media yes. response? No, please do. And Paul, just make a sign to us when you seem to come back online. And this does happen, and uh, uh, we, 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 we'll work a way around this. Good. Tom, if you'd like to say a word or two about yeah, media. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just pick up there because I was in full flow. And I think uh, one, you know, with... Well, I'm just thinking of the example that, um, of Hannah Swift and Ben Steeden's recent work for Centre for Aging Better that really shows us how the media shapes and perpetuates negative attitudes and stereotypes of aging. And we see that in, in one of my you know, newfound passions is around the ways in which older people are visually represented as being vulnerable in the media. So we see this in the numerous stock images that are used that dehumanize people and reduce them to no more than a series of body parts, whether that's hands, arms, legs, whatever it is. And also in the obsessive focus on a perceived epidemic of loneliness that affects older people, the evidence is actually strikingly in the opposite direction that in the UK, the Office of National Statistics published a report this week that shows that you know five percent of older people have all are all have been always or often lonely over the course of a month of the pandemic, and that really doesn't sit comfortably with how the media would like to represent older people's social relationships in terms of quality and quantity. And I think it just reflects again that sort of deep-seated view that old age is equivalent to loneliness I'll stop Indeed. There hashtag no back. more wrinkly hands uh, Paul you're back hello sorry about that it, it destroyed my complete screen I was just trying to answer the question that we've been set about uh, what does you know the crisis reveal about aging in contemporary society and I think one of the things that is important is the fact that that it has brought to the forefront a kind of a bifurcation in the older population so we've discussed the fact that everybody is is, is um, linked together with the category of being over 70 yet we also have a crisis in the care homes and one of the things that has led me to think about is that if the, the issue around being linked together as having similar problems because you're over 70 has reverted back to an older form of ageism that old age is just a chronological problem that in, is associated with illness and disability. And obviously quite a lot of people have then criticized that. Oh dear, let's see. I'm sorry about this. This is, uh, I must imagine very frustrating for everybody as well as me. I'm just trying to um, talk about the fact that there is a bifurcation in the kind of discourses around ageism, which, you know, separate those who could be described as in the third age from those who are seen as existing within the fourth age and the very fact there's been a very simple lack of any interest in those in care homes to the fact that when we in, in the government has announced that it didn't know 
why they sent people back to nursing homes without checking whether they had COVID-19 on the grounds that they were assured that there wasn't a problem. It just, there was a, that lack of, that curious lack of interest, I think says an awful lot about the way that ageism has become uh, funneled, particularly around those people in nursing homes in a way that those people who can say that I may be 70, but I'm not any different from the rest of the population. I think that's an actually important cultural phenomenon. And also, I think it also reflects in some part the re-emergence of generational conflict as a theme within society, that, that some of the points that have been made by a number of uh, commentators are, well, herd immunity would be okay for the, the younger population. The herd immunity has been a disastrous policy, but it was actually based on the assumption that, well, all you would be doing is pushing the numbers of old people dying a bit faster than you would have normally. And equally, we've had proposals in this country for the, the age-segregated uh, unlocking of the lockdown so that people in their 20s and 30s and 40s should be allowed to actually be released first because in some senses they are more important to the economy. Now, this isn't necessarily a popular uh, argument, but at the same time, it's certainly there. So I think we need to be aware of some of the ways in which aging is being represented in complex ways. And I said that very quickly because I didn't want the thing to crash again. <laughs> <laughs> Good, okay. Well, listen, that's, you've brought us right up in time. It gives us uh, some time. And I think uh, it's interesting vulnerabilities come back from some of our questioners. So perhaps, and, and, and the use of vulnerability, COVID has actually perhaps sharpened, sharpened our, our, our lens to this. So Tom, you were going to say a few words and any of the other panelists, if you'd let me know, good. Well, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I think what we need to really do is to think very carefully about the language that is used in terms of describing the heterogeneity of later life that you referred to earlier, Des, um, is, you know, I think as social gerontologists, we need to step back and say we've actually failed to communicate a view in the public domain that represents aging as something more than vulnerability. And this is a reason why I think we need to take time to sit down with uh, policymakers, with politicians, with media organizations to really provide some of that gerontological literacy that would allow them to move away from that negative um, set of negative stereotypes. Yeah. Alva. Anna, Anna. Sorry, Anna. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just uh, um, picking up a few points made by our audience here. Uh, many of them actually are responding to the term vulnerability and they're critiquing the, the, the widespread uh, usage of, of the category of vulnerable by saying that actually what it does, it, 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 um, it um, pre prevents older people from, from enacting their own agency. Yeah, under the cloud of under the cloud of protection, yeah, agent, agency is being swept away, uh, and uh, a, a whole cohort of people, including people with disabilities, as one of our participants pointed out, are then being policed uh, by uh, government policy. So I do think that this is where the, why you're right that the language matters so much that it is cocooning is 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 a metaphor that actually. Um, 
in a way, uh, prevents any kind of critical engagement with government policy. Yeah, it's 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 a term that is 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 set up to prevent a critical investigation of what is behind this type of policing. So I do think that the language matters. And I, I was just thinking the term, the elderly, there is no uh, linguistic equivalent, for example, in, in my own mother tongue in German. You, you are either older or old, but you are, the elderly does not exist. Good. Uh, I mean, one of, one of our opportunities here is to think, sorry, Alva, beg your pardon. Uh, you know, the term vulnerability is really very interesting because the reality is that as human beings, we can and often are at different points in our lives vulnerable mm -hmm. and vulnerable in all kinds of different ways. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of women who um, are very vulnerable during the pandemic because uh, they are living with violent partners and they are extremely vulnerable to emotional and physical and psychological and so on uh, abuse. Um, but there is something about using vulnerability in relation to older people that is problematic. But I think that we have to bring back that concept of vulnerability as a reality in human living um, mm. and not be afraid of it. There is a fear of vulnerability. So rather than sort of saying, well, we can't be talking, we can't be using the term vulnerable, we can, we must, and we should, because people can be vulnerable. But we have to dissociate it from being age, uh, old age specific. Uh, and I think that's really very important because the of the 62% of deaths of over 65s, I think, in this country from COVID-19, the vast majority of those were also associated with an underlying medical condition. So, you know, <laughs> that there was a, there was a pre-existing vulnerability there, which was a real vulnerability, but which was not just about age. Um, I'm not a gerontologist, so I probably shouldn't be coming in there, but I feel quite strongly about vulnerability. No, no but I think it's, it's getting these interpretations of these words from many disciplines is how we'll move forward, and it's really important. Have we any other yeah. of our panellists with an interest in coming back on how COVID uh, has sharpened up our use of these words or given us opportunities? Can I just say something? But I think that we also have, following on from the last comment, accept the, the fact that aging is also a physiological process and I think sometimes that has been missing from some of the gerontological uh, discussion and so that obviously the older you are the more vulnerable to use the term earlier the more likely you are to die and I think we have to be aware of the fact that aging does actually have its own nature as well and that old age as a category does actually come with a risk of dying and i think therefore some of the points that are about how does a government respond have to also take into that consideration we can't just see them in terms of the the rights of people we have to think about them in terms of what could you do to protect people and i think it's you know the, the idea of lockdown lockdown is not a good term in any language but it was then designed to stop the transmission of a virus. And I think we have to accept that that's actually about the physiological process rather than the social process. Good point. Last comment from Tom, and then I, I'll hand yeah. over. Uh, it, it's a point that could take a long time, but I'll just make it quickly. It's in reflecting inequalities. Is that the other dimension that is really coming through in the UK is the really, is the way in which risk of dying from COVID um, is patterned 
you know along the social gradient and especially as we see um older people living in very disadvantaged urban communities are at the greatest risk so vulnerability isn't just a feature of old age it's a it's a risk but it's a risk factor alongside many other risk factors and you know when we get to our inquiry i'm hoping that we also can look at some of the, you know the combination of risks that um, people have experienced and the poor yeah. way in which we've responded to that absolutely well listen i'm going to hand over thank you very much uh, tom and paul i think you've enriched us very much with your perspectives and now over to Julia Langbein for the next section as chair. Thank you, Julia. Hello. Um, thank you for that. Um, and uh, Tom, I thank you for bringing up the, the question of stock photos, which has been absolutely shocking. Like not just the fact, not just the content of the stock photos, the metonymy of hands and things, but the fact that they use stock photos repeatedly instead of pictures of individuals speaks volumes. Um, so uh, in this panel, we are going to start with Susan Picard, who is Professor of Sociology and Research Lead in the Department of Sociology, Social Policy and Criminology at the University of Liverpool. Her research interests are centered on conceptualizations of the aging body, living with chronic illness, gender and its intersection with age, and the interplay of lay and scientific knowledge, caregiving, and the nature of biomedical knowledge. Uh, Andrew King is Professor of Sociology and Deputy Head of the Department of Sociology at the University of Surrey. He's co-director of the Center for Research on Aging and Gender, co-chair of the Sex, Gender and Sexualities Research Group, and his research covers social gerontology and the sociology of aging, gender and sexualities across the life course. Um, Professor Desmond O'Neill, who you've already met. Um, so let's get to Susan, over to you. Um, I really, really hope I'm not going to crash because I've crashed already once before. So I'm going to try and talk very quickly for the sake of uh, superstition because I'm bound to crash now, aren't I? Um, anyway, I, I want to pick up on points that several people have already made um, to do with intergenerational issues um, and also the representation of older people in the media. I want to talk about the way my main observation of this is the way the media in particular has discussed the COVID-19 crisis in the UK, um, where I'm, I'm really focusing, in ways that have exacerbated ongoing generational divisions as part of an age war discourse, I go as far as to say, which has been fostered for some time within the media. Um, I, I've written about, about this myself in the past. Um, I've seen it as a mode in which elite interests can avoid more problematic class war type discourses. Um, but at the same time, age war, unfortunately, is also appealing to people on the left uh, part of the spectrum who have traditionally um, viewed youth as synonymous with progress, I suppose, and enlightened thought and associated the old in contrast with, with all that's regressive and conservative. Um, and generational justice or rather injustice themes have been and remain extremely salient um, in many aspects, both in terms of the practical management, but particularly perhaps the representation of the crisis in the UK, including things like how to balance individual health, um, the right to individual health with the economy, um, in considerations of the generations most likely to be affected in terms of employment and housing and the lockdown itself in both psychological and economic terms, as well as um, of who will suffer most from the recession that's predicted to follow. 
and throughout this discourse, the respective value of the old and younger generations in contemporary society has been very starkly revealed, perhaps more so than in previous times when what I call age war discourse has appeared and reared its ugly head. Um, because and this does have a long history, it goes back at least to 1948, but it has become increasingly prominent um, as, a, as a lens through which the media in particular have viewed um, a, a range of, of, of tricky issues um, in the past decade. So for example, it's appeared in, in the context of austerity, Brexit and the return of conservative governments to power. And it's interesting as well that both the third and the fourth ages have been included in this discourse and both of them have been portrayed negatively, albeit for um, different reasons and in different ways. So in the case of the third age old, things like the wealth in housing and pension stock are picked out as a reason for generational injustice. And they've been blamed for, for so many problems from um, climate change to today's financial capitalism. But um, in fact, of course, uh, the fact that the, the idea that third age pensioners are, are privileged overlooks things like one in six pres, uh, pensioners live in poverty, one in five rent their own home, so they're not homogeneously privileged at all. But this, this has continued in terms of um, COVID-19. They've been depicted, for example, as not, not only not suffering any ill consequences from lockdown, but as even enjoying it whilst managing in many cases to profit from it, e.g. by being able to save, unlike the majority of the young. Um, in the case of the fourth age, the age that has no real value in contemporary society, um, you know, the, the long-held the long argument is that um, the cost of paying for their health and welfare is, is detrimental to working age population, but this has been viciously sharpened in the context of COVID-19. I'm going to quote, um, first of all, Lord Sumption, writing in uh, an article recently in the Times, and Lord Sumption's a former Justice of the Supreme Court, for those that aren't um, in the UK. And he said, if all this is the price of saving human life, we have to ask whether it's worth paying. And he's referring to older people in that quote. And then again, Max Hastings, who was the editor of the London Evening Standard, and before that, the Daily Telegraph, he called older people in a, an article last month in the Times as well, as monumentally selfish, a dead weight upon the health system and the past, not the future. These sorts of comments are so disturbing that if they were directed at any other minority group in the population, they would be deemed a hate crime. And at the same time, strangely enough, um, older people living in the community are not considered um, officially to be sufficiently vulnerable on the basis of their age, that is, to merit being placed on the NHS's shielded patients list. So there is a disconnect here between um, clinical reality and public perception. So just to sum up, my, my view is that this, the complete devaluing of especially deep old age or, or the fourth age has directly led to the care homes death tragedy. Um, and furthermore, there's a particularly pernicious gendered element here in that this systemic ageism is exacerbated by the lack of value placed on old women in particular. Um, and so the deaths in care homes are not just what I consider to be a genocide in this respect, but they're in fact a female genocide when you consider that 72% of all care home residents in the UK are female. And of course, there are similar figures in, in Europe. So to sum up, the COVID-19 crisis did not create this way of looking at ageing and old age. But age war has served firstly as a simplistic and conflict-based framework through which people can interpret the crisis and at the same time and secondly as a framework that works as a magnifying glass to reveal deeper social attitudes to old age. 
Thank you for that. It's really important. Um, sorry, were you waving your hand for a comment? I'm gonna, we're gonna move to Andrew King right now um, and we'll do discussion afterwards. So Andrew. Okay, thank you very much to the organisers for inviting me to the panel and um, it's great to be here and contribute. Um, this is based on my observations of, re of reporting about COVID in the mainstream media in the UK and as someone who re researches ageing amongst lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans uh, communities. So for me, COVID has revealed a deeply embedded chrononormativity to contemporary British culture. And arguably, I think this probably applies to many other countries as well. Just about every major media outlet speaks of the elderly, as we've heard, uh, as a largely undifferentiated group with very little recognition of diverse um, experiences of ageing or the intersections between ageing and other sources of identity and social division. And I've been really quite shocked um, at the use of the elderly as a term in completely unproblematic ways. When I say chrononormative rather than ageist or ageism, although I think the former begets the latter, I really mean that we can see widespread acceptance in public discourse that chronological age is the marker that defines ageing rather than social, cultural and political and even other physiological factors. And that this chronology should be used to apportion how governments and health systems respond to COVID. Elizabeth Freeman in her book Time Binds describes chrononormativity as, and I quote, the use of time to organize individual human bodies toward maximum productivity. I think we see the logic of chrononormativity in ways in which the over 70s are thought of as a mass in need of confinement and protection, located in specific age-defined spatial contexts as unproductive, or represented as productive only in certain ways, non-employed, uh, voluntary uh, ways, raising funds for charity or as grandparents who normally care for grandchildren. Chrononormativity is heterosexualized. It's based on a heteronormative temporal logic that privileges the heterosexual family and a view of the family, um, of the life course, sorry, based on reproductive futurity and normative gender divisions. In my view, we've seen this in media representations, public discourse and in political discourse around children, grandparents, Mother's Day, school closures and reopenings and lockdown restrictions. The elderly are isolated from their extended heterosexual families. Such heteronormative media communication erases from view people whose lives differ from but are subject to these norms. This includes those aging without children, but also older LGBT people, whether they have children or not. I haven't seen older LGBT people represented in the mainstream media at all, or seen any specific advice for older LGBT people in mainstream communications about COVID. Thankfully, there are LGBT charities and support groups who are continuing to engage with older LGBT people. 
who might be significantly affected by COVID. Um, just to give you one example, Opening Doors, the UK's largest charity supporting older LGBT people. They have a befriending scheme, which has run for several years just before the start of COVID they introduced a tele-befriending uh, scheme and they have told me that they've seen a tenfold increase in referrals since lockdown. There are online guides available from LGBT organisations in the UK and other countries about how best services can support older LGBT people. In these publications, older LGBT people are represented as more likely to be isolated, to have physical and mental health comorbidities from dealing with a lifetime of prejudice and discrimination, have concerns about seeking support from neighbours, and are living hidden lives in care homes for fear and discrimination and harassment. All of these inequalities in, uh, intersect with COVID. So whilst these representations have a factual basis, as evidenced in research by myself and many colleagues, both in the UK and elsewhere, I also think it's important to avoid generalisations or what I've called constraint narratives, uh, rather like we were talking about earlier on, uh, to recognise that LGBT ageing is diverse and intersectional and that people have developed coping mechanisms, community support, social networks, chosen families and ways of being that enable them to not only cope with COVID and its social ramifications, but subvert the logics of chrono and heteronormativity that I spoke about earlier. Thank you. Fantastic, yeah, Des. Great, thank you very much. Um, it's a real pleasure to be in this uh, network and framework of rethinking. And I suppose one of the things about COVID, it's exposed that in the Irish uh, Republic, the junior minister for older people is not somewhere general like uh, the Department of Taoiseach, our prime minister, but it's in the Ministry for Health, the Department of Health. And this in a way, even I as a geriatrician, I'm saying this is a bad thing to be seeing older people through the framework of health and medicine and illness, rather than the contributions, the richness and the ability to live. But I'd like to go back to the academic community and scholarship. And while there would be a degree of forgiveness for us as a group uh, saying it's an emergency, we've got to do things in a pragmatic way. One of the really troubling things have been some of the ethics pronouncements on older people in official circles in Ireland and the lack of any clear academic pushback. Uh, I'm intending one myself, but I was waiting to see. In the first instance, they were both anonymous. Now, this is completely counter-cultural and for generally forbidden in that there is no ethics view from nowhere. So there's a general ethical framework for COVID-19, which contains the very worrying phrase that one of the things that will, should be used if we have to ration critical care was life years saved, which effectively is let's put old age down as one of the reasons that you mightn't get a ventilator. So, uh, Things moved on and a, I, I did a little bit of digging around around people who should have been saying, actually, this is not acceptable. Uh, and there was a, one of the things we're really clear about is overt ageism affecting people during COVID-19. But I think this is more troubling in a way in that it is occult ageism, which is uh, unattributed, unidentified and really cast some shame on those who were involved and let themselves have an anonymous document. 
Even more troubling was on last week, the 4th of June, an ethics considerations for people living in nursing homes or care homes, as they're called in the United Kingdom, was released. And it had some really troubling elements in it. One of them was that advanced care planning, which is a very sophisticated process where you've got to discuss with people what their preferences are, what the options are. It's a longitudinal process. You don't just do it now and finish it. Uh, they said that this could be done by telephone. And I have to say, I was stunned, stunned at this, particularly as generally whatever brings you to be in a nursing home, at whatever age you are, it was all age residential care, uh, intellectual disability, gives some barriers that face-to-face that -face is probably important. And the second thing, it seemed to normalise or rationalise that your clinical consultations, when you're sick in a nursing home, and if you don't transfer to a, to a hospital, and it doesn't have to be for ventilation, the uh, corresponding part of that should be, well, you'll get adequate medical and other care in a nursing home. And this says more or less normatized that you would get a telephone or a videophone clinical care. So this really, in many ways, threw back, I suppose, to the Irish academic, intellectual community, gerontology community, uh, those who were in departments of philosophy, for example, in the universities, uh, those in departments of theology, um, really the question of how do we integrate, how do we respond back, and how do we create a narrative? So I suppose that's one point I'd like to bring, that COVID-19 has seen a degradation of what should be an important scholarly activity uh, in the public space uh, that really has I, to my mind, helps to undermine uh, care, undermine the framework of aging. But what are our opportunities? And I think it's interesting, George Floyd uh, has clearly been a tipping point in Black Lives Matter. And I suppose one of the questions I put back to the various panelists and maybe to our questions is, is, is there a silver lining to this COVID cloud, which I think we've heard from all our speakers so far, has exacerbated uh, our, our really made shine out pre-existing ageism. And are we at a hashtag older lives matter where we could actually begin to see that we can reclaim this space, promote the longevity dividend and promote all the care things we're doing as protecting the longevity dividend rather than looking after the vulnerable. That might be Thank a good you. moment to um, bring in David Taransky's comment. Um, that in the Black Lives Matter movement, um, vulnerability isn't a dirty word. In fact, um, people of color are claiming we are vulnerable to, for example, violent mm. policing. Um, so is, he asks, is, um, is that usage of the term vulnerable something that you're seeing in the UK and Ireland? Um, and I also want to throw one more question out there. Well, maybe, maybe we'll get a response to, a lot has been thrown out there, but I want to come back to, um, Susan's um, important emphasis on the economy. But so this idea of vulnerability going two ways, is that something that you're seeing in, um, in the UK and, and in Ireland? The idea that actually to claim we are vulnerable isn't, um, isn't only to establish or to, to in, uh, invoke a kind of frailty, but to, to um, to call for, I suppose, to attention to 
um, the ways that uh, people are marginalized and mistreated. Yes, Andrew. I think it depends who is doing the 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 sort of the name the naming or the claiming of of being vulnerable, rather than having vulnerability imposed on um, people. Um, so you know, I think I often see um, you know, publications and they say all older LGBT people are vulnerable, and that is not the case. Um, there are people in vulnerable situations in vul having vulnerable experiences or whatever, but they're not, it's not a whole group. Um, and, and it worries me when that kind of um, blanket kind of um, term is applied to older LGBT people. Yeah, Susan. I just, I want to sort of add to what you've said, Andy, but also pull a point that Paul made. Um, there is a vulnerability perhaps associated with, with aging or it, at least being in deep old age, um, that is that is a, a you know it's it's part of a continuum with with the, the with human human beings of all ages, of course. But there's that kind of vulnerability. But then there's also we have to really carefully disentangle that from the vulnerability that people are forced that that's forced upon people. So people in care homes were vulnerable because of government neglect, um, not just because they were, you know in a class that is deemed inherently vulnerable. But, and, it's, and it's too easy for the, both categories to be elided, I think. Um, so yeah, there's nothing wrong with claiming vulnerability, but I think what's really important is looking at how people are um, put in vulnerable situations. And, and that's, part of, that's part of ageism. Mm. Um, yeah, you, sorry, go ahead, Sarah. I would say that it's a matter of looking out to the structural level, to the systemic level, and, and so that vulnerability, um, it's, it's like what you're saying, Susan, that it is um, collectively imposed from the outside by basic structures. And so that I think that when someone claims the vulnerability for themselves, what they're doing is highlighting what's broken systematically within the society at large. And that so often when you're a part of a group that's othered and on the outside, um, you're silenced. So you don't speak up about the vulnerabilities. So, so um, I think it's important for any group that's other to, to really claim that. And that's, that is what's happening beautifully uh, within the Black Lives Matters movement. And I think um, old age, it, it, we are, as we age, we are uh, vulnerable in different ways. We're all vulnerable in different ways at different times, but to claim it as something that individually is a beacon and light that shines on what's broken in society can be very, very useful. Well, speaking of systemic uh, brokenness, although we'll go to you in just one second, but I just want to mention in the comments, um, somebody has written, how do you think racism and ageism interlock? Um, how do you think, um, do you think about the struggle for black lives and older lives as linked through a logic of capitalism that renders so many people disposable? And another commenter earlier said, uh, frailty is basically an industry, right? That where does this language of frailty come from? Well, it, um, it, it creates the need for an industry to then um, capture the care for those people. Yeah, I see a lot of hands going up. So Alva and then Mary. 
last that last point actually i was just simply going to raise the question that it's very difficult in in this late capitalist um economy that we have to um to, to see how vulnerability can in fact be restored it is that very fact of capitalism which in fact is producing that distancing from anyone and anything which is vulnerable so vulnerability and capitalism are uh, in conflict so that human beings cannot be that we must be productive and in fact we've seen that in in discussions and conversations not just here and in the uk but elsewhere and particularly in the us about the need to push everybody back into production uh, with the result that those who can't or won't or are frail at whatever point they are in 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 their lives are caught in um in yet another dreadful situation where they're going to be seen as unproductive useless members of society so in fact the pandemic is raising all of these uh, these issues and of course i mean it is very closely one one of the many roots for the black lives matter movement and its eruption at the present time because it has opened us all up and exposed everything really uh, as as ready and needing in need of fundamental change radical and revolutionary change which makes a person like me not altogether unhappy, I have mm -hmm. to say. Mary. Um, just on this, uh, this topic of frailty and disposability of those deemed to be vulnerable as a, as a weakness um, of their, perhaps of their own making or due to their own state and not to do with wider societal um, issues. I, something I have found concerning and which makes me think um, that this current conversation about how we talk about and, and kind of construct older people could become a bit of a testing ground for something wider. Um, what I find sinister is the proposal of immunity passports, which has been touted around, and I, I, I understand the WHO is urging caution there, but immunity passports, um, were they to be issued, could just place a whole you know, in a very undifferentiated way, an, an awful lot of us in, into a similar space to, to where older people have been placed as a result of the pandemic thus far. That's just something I wanted to, to point out, you know, that we uh, can find ourselves in that space. You know, yeah. It depends sorry. on your government. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I also think that we have to be aware that there is also a split amongst the older population. I think that one of the importance of the use of the third age and the fourth age is third age people do not really want to be in the fourth age. They, in some senses, have also, you know, you know organised the uh, ev you know, evacuation of nursing homes from the imagination around old age. And I think that has to be kind of like seen in terms of this issue of vulnerability. People who are in the third age do not want to be seen as vulnerable. They want to be seen as equally able to be active as the rest of the population. And that's why that 70 age uh, category became so irritating to so many people, because they thought that they had actually avoided being regarded as old. They don't like being regarded as old. And so consequently, they wanted to other the people in the nursing homes. And I think that part of the problem for the nursing homes is that they are the you know, the, the real face of aging that nobody wants to face. And I think that's why I, I talked about fourth ageism, because in some sense, it allows you to kind of like push everything away. And so say, actually, I'm 70 and I'm on my bike. And if you looked at the kind of 
the responses to the uh, use of 70, it was about, I am much fitter than the 45 year old who doesn't exercise. That there was a process of distinction going on amongst the older population that I think also needs to be acknowledged. Yeah, um, I think we have to cede uh, the floor to Mary um, in, in one moment, but I do just wanna pick up on this really important idea of um, generational warfare, generational conflict that Susan brought up and that I think many of you are touching on. The fact that in this crisis, children were weaponized, you know, and like teenager, young people seen as kind of knowingly weaponized. Um, and uh, thinking about my generation, you know, the okay boomer meme, that there's this um, kind of resentment and anger towards my parents' generation because they, you know, supposedly, uh, de rode a deregulated uh, stock market to riches, you know, deregulated, um, you know, financial and, and uh, environmental deregulation and, and left us with a mess, you know, this whole, this whole narrative. And Susan, you, you talked about the austerity and Brexit narratives actually kind of giving cover for um, ageism. And I think that's another really important way that economic discourse and the discourse of ageism are interlocked. Um, okay, so Mary, um, unless there's any burning comments, Mary, over to you. Thanks, Julia. Um, I'm very pleased to introduce our final um, panel uh, in today's webinar. So our first discussant is Ulla Kriberneg, who's Assistant Professor in the Institute of American Studies at the University of Austria. Dr. Kriberneg is Chair of the Age and Care Group at the University of Katz, and she's also Deputy Chair of the European Network in Aging Studies. She's editor of the book series, Aging Studies. Our second panelist is Rina Knuff, Assistant Professor in the Department of Early Modern History at the University of Groningen, the Netherlands. And Dr. Knuff's research expertise lies in the cultural history of the body, Dutch medicine in the Enlightenment, and the pre-modern history of aging. And our final discussant today is Dana Walroth, Professor of Medical Anthropology, writer and artist who studied both visual arts and biology and was faculty at the University of Vermont where she uh, taught med students. But when her mother Alice was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, Dana returned to cre creative practice and composed a graphic memoir, Alzheimer's, about her mother and dementia um, to great acclaim. So, Ulla, um, over to you as our first speaker. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here and delighted. Thank you for all the work you've put into this. I'm actually a humanities scholar. I come from the field of literature and I deal with representations of aging, cultural representations in film, in the media, and in literature, as I said before. Actually, I've been ticking checkboxes now while you've all been speaking. <laughs> A lot of topics have now been mentioned already, but um, I want to touch briefly upon two components of this whole idea of how COVID has, um, has had an impact on our lives. I think it's sort of a magnifying glass that allows us to see all sorts of inequalities um, much larger and magnified in a way. And it's also perhaps an opportunity to see what sort of society do we, do we really want to live in. And one of the aspects is care. And um, one aspect that we have not talked about yet is the aspect of caregivers. And in Austria, we're a small country with lots of countries around. So our borders were closed and suddenly we realized all those Eastern European women caregivers could not travel to Austria anymore. And 
this public secret that Kathleen Woodward has already written about in her fantastic article, Public Secret Assisted Living Caregivers and Globalization, now came to my mind a lot of times. Those women, Eastern European women from Romania, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and so on, had to stay for six weeks, take shift of, shifts of six weeks, and then go back into a quarantine of two additional weeks that they had to finance themselves. And that's, I think, a scandal. And so this pandemic, I think, has brought or has shed light on, on caregiving in a new way. Although I think the lobby will not be strong enough to change much about that, but I still think um, we can no longer ignore how underpaid and unappreciated and invisible these women have been so far. Um, the media representations, however, that I am focusing on are interesting because um, although 24-hour caregivers have now been represented in the media, um, the problem was that they were all represented, almost without exception, as naturally inclined to do care work. And so it's not only about a gendered thing, it's, all, it's also really about intersectionality. And um, those women were, were portrayed as naturally inclined to do care work because they are more family oriented, because they adhere to more traditional values and so on. So one woman, for instance, said uh, on in the local paper, I cannot leave my Romanian, uh, my, my Austrian granny behind because what would she do? She'd have to go to a nursing home, the black hole of the fourth age as Heimhausam and also you, Paul and, and Chris, you've put it. So this fourth age as a black hole has been also reinforced by this question of where are people taken care of? Going to the unimaginable horror of the nursing home, of course, is an image you've all been discussing so far. And the fear of ending up in a long-term care institution is extremely large at the moment. But I've talked to Sally Chivers, my colleague from Trent University, with whom I work very closely. She's had a project on reimagining long-term care. And they have shown, and there is evidence-based research on that, that places of long-term care do not necessarily have to be awful, dark, sinister, gothic places. There is also a lot of great places with joy, with embracing life, with making new contacts, and even rewriting the last chapter of, of your lives in a positive manner. So I think it's also important to point that out. And today in a newspaper, I found this image. And I think you can see it. An old woman looking out the window, typical stock photographer, like Tom said, the burden of old age. Yeah? And then you see this image here behind me. This is not the burden image. This is really an image of an old woman embracing life from a Swedish exhibition, Arthrika, Rich in Years in Gothenburg. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at these two images that are yeah, really on, on different ends of a scale. Um, and the second aspect here is that's in terms of care. The second aspect, if I still have like a minute, yeah. is the aspect of climate change, which is also linked to the COVID pandemic and the crisis in care. Because um, as you mentioned before already, um, Julia, this uh, um, okay boomer meme, I think is something we have to look at. The boomer remover, as Corona was called it in, already in March, I think, links the boomers, as a boomer remover, I mean, this is really cynical, of course, 
So it reveals that there is this connection because the OK Boomer meme came up um, a couple of weeks earlier. And there are um, both climate change and the economic recession due to COVID and due to the lockdown are seen as issues of special concern to younger generations that will actually be alive to see the damage wrought by prior generations. And there is, as a last point, this wonderful short story by Margaret Ashwood called Torching the Dusties, about five years old, where a mob of young people wearing baby masks approaches nursing homes all over the world or North America um, and they torch down, they burn nursing homes to the ground because of those parasites too old and too um, expensive to maintain. And in the story that was clearly written before the pandemic, they argue that the old are too um, expensive, they eat up the healthcare dollar, um, and, and the young group's aggression is motivated by their rage against the carelessness with which the older generations allegedly used to treat nature and national resources. So I think looking at cultural representations, at literature, at images, at media um, reports is something that we need to do, that we need to do even, even more than before, because Corona, I think, has really given us a hard time. All those critical gerontologists and age studies scholars, I think we are now, it's a huge step back in time. So all the efforts we've been making in terms of seeing, uh, working against this decline narrative. I don't want to see them as shattered, but at least we really have to continue. Um, I, as somebody says, I have to state the name of the story. It's torching the, yeah, it's there. It's torching the dusties by Margaret Atwood. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Ola. Rina, over to you. Thank you, Mary, uh, and thank you, organizers, for inviting me to this very exciting uh, event. Um, I, ha I have some things to say that from the Netherlands, it's a very Dutch perspective and uh, some of the things uh, are very familiar and touch upon for very uh, familiar themes that have been discussed already. Uh, but I want to start off by showing you a picture. Have a look at this photograph, uh, which was published a couple of days ago in a Dutch newspaper. The context was an article on the violation of human rights in care homes during the lockdown. On the picture we see Magda Klein. She, uh, up until the lockdown, looked after her mother in a care home. And she is here showing the two photographs of her 100-year-old mother. The one on the left shows her mother just before the lockdown. The one on the right shows her mother a few weeks later after the hermetic closure of her care home. On the left she looks really well. On the right, she looks exhausted. According to Klein, uh, right up to the lockdown, her mother was mentally fit and interested in her grandchildren, but now she has given up on life. Klein blames this for this lack of Klein blames for this the lack of care, especially attention that her mother received over the past few weeks. The article joins a growing chorus in the Netherlands on the rigid, even inhumane ways in which lockdown rules meant to protect the elderly have been enforced. Care homes have even placed fences to make impossible that family could hold hands of a locked up parent. What is at issue here is our understanding, and here it is again, of vulnerability and basic human needs. The Dutch gerontologist Marshall Alder Rickert has been very vocal about this. 
he argues that all the people, and I quote, are not so much afraid of death as such, but they fear a lonely death, unquote. Rickert points out that Dutch COVID-19 interventions have actually increased the vulnerability of the elderly. They have in fact weakened them by isolating them from their loved ones. It should come as no surprise that we can learn a lot from pre-modern lifestyle medicine with its careful discussion of human beings and their needs in terms of age, gender, climate, social status, etc., combined with a great focus on emotional and social well-being. 18th century advice books on longevity, for instance, were based on the idea that aging bodies are usually ailing bodies. They also emphasize that, quote, the fear of death appears to be much less in old age than in the early or middle life. For this reason, a large portion of lifestyle advice for the elderly focused on cheerfulness, comfort, and a tranquil mind, and not on laboratory results. In other words, lifestyle advice for the elderly was concerned above all with what we would now identify as issues discussed in the humanities and not in biomedicine. And I'm focusing now on lifestyle medicine because I can see in the Netherlands a sort of movement towards lifestyle medicine as a kind of preventive measure against COVID-19, or at least the results uh, of COVID-19. So what is worrying is that the humanities are not widely heard in all of this. Together with three other Dutch historians, I have argued publicly in national broadsheets, on the national radio, and so on, that in the current crisis we are in dire need of more involvement of the humanities. We have not been dismissive of the government, instead we have formulated constructive proposals. But as far as national politics goes, our proposals have fallen on deaf ears. The Dutch outbreak management team is essentially a secret club of virologists and intensive care specialists. No scholars from the humanities and social sciences nor gerontologists have been asked to help them. Now, with social resistance mounting, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte has claimed they would welcome the input put not as you might think of gerontologists, humanities scholars or social scientists, no, he has called for youth interest groups to give advice. So much for the interest of the government in the aging part of the population, the people they claim to want to protect with their lockdown. However, there is a small silver lining. My colleagues and I have been invited by local governments and administrations, for instance, to speak to operational teams across the country. And these teams, they consist of mayors, representatives of the police, as well as, well as community workers. They are, it would appear, far closer to the worries and needs of the people in their care. From my experience, I am convinced that if we want to change something for our elderly, we have to start bottom up from this particular local level. Thank you, Rina. Um, we'll move to Dana now as our last panelist for today. Dana. Thank you. Um, so many of the things that I'm going to talk about have been touched on, so it's really an honor and a pleasure to be here and to knit it together somewhat. So I want to start by asking everyone to please join me um, by taking a deep breath in and a breath out, because life depends upon breath. And we mark the boundaries of life and death with breath, but rarely we've linked breath with privilege until now. 
as George Floyd's words, I can't breathe, have echoed across the globe, asking us to reframe the very act of aging as a human right. The disproportionate deaths of black and brown people from the coronavirus and from police brutality, from war and more, result from how structural violence and systemic racism get encoded into our bodies. White people like me, who benefit from these same structures, tend to live longer. So to unpack the systems at work as part of reframing the act of aging as a human right, I want to talk a little bit about the privilege in my mother Alice's pre-COVID final breath. After a dementia journey lasting close to two decades, my mother experienced a beautiful death in the care home where she had been loved and touched and fed and teased and bathed and accepted for three full years. My sister and I were alone with her the night her breathing stopped. And in the hours that followed, others slowly joined us, dear women and the occasional dear men, men, essential workers all, so many of whom were people of color, peoples displaced by war, and economic migrants from the global south. Someone opened a window for the sake of Alice's soul. Someone else covered the room's mirror. And just as Alice had stayed fully human despite the losses of dementia, after her last breath, she was still someone to address. One person spoke to Alice about her son who had recently been killed in Ghana and asked Alice to watch out for him when they met. We washed her body together and chose her clothes. We broke bread and drank and laughed and hugged. And as Alice's grandchildren arrived throughout the day, I could say to each of them that she was still here because around her heart, it was still warm. So breathe in, you can touch her, breathe out, you can feel her still. Everyone deserves this kind of death. Now, though Alice started life in New York City, a poor brown person, the daughter of refugees of genocide, she died white. Her aging and dementia and her good death depended upon privilege. So she wasn't one of the hundreds per day carried out of their New York apartments by rescue workers after dying alone from the coronavirus, nor was she an isolated cyborg attached to tubes and machines. But our unjust systems and structures ensure that many of the people who lavished Alice with care could not do the same thing for their own loved ones. Some of them had left their loved ones back home when they came to care for aging populations in the global north. I mean, in Japan, workers from the Philippines sustain the aging industry. Um, and as Rina just spoke about, you know, we've got the, the people coming into Austria. No, that was Ula, sorry. Um, and in Japan, uh, in Ireland, we have workers from the Philippines, Poland, and Brazil coming into the mix. And in the United States, who are the carers? It's mostly black people, indigenous peoples, people from the global south, and some poor whites who do this work. The pandemic highlights for us how these essential workers experience high risk for low pay to the detriment of their own long-term health. As we reframe aging as a global human right, let's also recognize the limits of biomedicine in charting this path. The pandemic has revealed the dehumanizing effects of death prevention through expert manipulation of individual physiology. 
a focus on just physical bodies and infection containment, placed people into a strange world of tubes and masks and ventilators and no human connection, creating the perfect conditions for delirium or for just plain giving up. It also set up standards that were impossible to meet if you were living in poverty and couldn't physically distance or didn't have running water to wash your hands. But most importantly, this overemphasis on technological interventions to save individuals masks the real political, historical, and economic injustices at the root of sickness. These are the deaths to prevent. These are the ones we can prevent. And so to do so, the people in power must divest. We must listen to and learn from Black activists. We must ask the questions. Who is not at the table? Who does my privilege hurt and how? Anti-Black racism is a public health crisis inside of individual countries like mine and across the globe. We know that systemic racism kills real people, not numbers. It kills fathers, sons, sisters, mothers, friends. Dismantling systems that predispose some individuals to sickness and death while privileging others will benefit all of us and we'll all live longer. George Floyd's murder made the health impact of anti-Black racism undeniable. So let's breathe together once more. Breathe in to honor George Floyd and all those protesting against police violence. And breathe out to reframe aging as a human right. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. Um, um, this has uh, been a, a really, really interesting panel to, uh, to listen to and to, to, to chair. Um, I, just looking at some, um, some comments that have come in that go back to even Susan's, um, Susan's talk, I suppose something that I wouldn't mind throwing out there is to what extent, having listened to, um, look, looked at the images, cultural representations, Rina and Ulla um, shared, and then also, Dana, you, you talked about race, but also gender to an extent as well, We've had the term genocide now too, uh, from Susan and yourself. To what extent is aging mainly a woman's business? I'm, I'm wondering, I'm just throwing that out there. To what extent is it somehow gendered to be a, a woman's business predominantly? Uh, the term vulnerable makes a lot of sense there as well, vis-a-vis -vis women. Um, yeah, so. Just it's an open question. It's it's a great question, Mary. I mean, with women, women do live longer, but women also do much of the caring throughout the life cycle. And it's always fascinating when people are talking about um, why women get more dementia. There's always a question: Well, is there something biological going on? But I think this is a classic case of we need to look at the second class status of women within the patriarchy to maybe to understand why dementia is um, part of their aging more often than it is for men. So that's one, one, one way in. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I also wanted to uh, actually uh, go back to the term genocide um, and because um, well, Susan, you, you know, going back to your, the previous panel, you used the term 
uh, genocide of female patients um, or uh, residents of care homes. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that. How exactly are you using that term in that context? Um, well, I don't want to be overly controversial, but it's, it just seemed to me hard to imagine that it was simply an oversight. Um, and I don't want to sort of buy into conspiracy theories, but, um, you know, I, I think part of the problem is, you know, it's, it's shaped and it's fed by the media discourses that, that, that openly proclaim the lack of value in the so-called fourth age, which is actually predominantly female, um, and not just dementia, but frailty itself is, is a majority um, of, the, of, the, of frail patients are poor, um, disadvantaged uh, older women. So in, 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 in many cases, I mean, it's very true to say the fourth age is, 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 is female, it's feminine. And even the men that are part of the fourth age are feminized to a great extent um, uh, in, in many ways. Um, so I think I was talking about it as a slightly provocative uh, nod to the fact that I think the ultimate consequence of the way we misrepresent or devalue older people in our in our cultural and social representations leads to exactly this the mm -hmm. fact that they're not worth saving um you know whether directly or indirectly they're they're basically um uh well they're basically left to die mm -hmm. so yeah it's there's a there's a deliberate element there too but that's part that's the ultimate consequence of ageism isn't it and to weave that together with with the um, carer theme that's come up in many people's um, words today, um, we we often look at care only through the lens of industry and 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 jobs, and then we devalue older people because of their. Um, uh, the way that they're not necessarily contributing to the classic uh, lines of productivity, as Susan and Andrew both both mentioned. But really, when we look at the value of the act of caring and conceive of it as a partnership, not as somebody giving and someone receiving, but we all gain from engaging in compassionate partnerships, from being open to one another's vulnerabilities. We learn through caring. And, and, and so that is, um, and we learn whenever someone else is vulnerable and we learn when we make our own selves vulnerable too. And so that, that uh, changing the discourse, I mean, I think activists have really been uh, focusing on us not using the language of caregiving. We're care partners always. Um, and, and that sort of highlights how we gain through the act of caring. Thank you, Dana. Des? Yeah, no, I'm just back, I completely 100% with Dana there. Uh, Arthur Kleinman talks very well about this. And we shouldn't be talking about care burden. We should be talking about the burdensome aspects of care and we all gain. I'd just like to go back to Susan and say, I agree with her that this was senicide, perhaps the, the right word. And what really troubles me, and it's an interesting discourse for the humanities and other scholars here, is if 62% of the deaths had occurred in children's homes, there would be an outcry, there would be the Royal Commission or whatever there is. We'd want to be sure that every person who died had appropriate care. Um, and what really troubles me here is we have, of course, we've sympathy 
for the underpaid workers in a capitalist industrial uh, nursing home industry. But have we let that blind us to the human rights? And the, the European Union Commissioner for Human Rights has clearly stated that every death should be accorded due uh, uh, investigation. And I think there's a real concern here, and I, I really hope that people will pick up on this, that uh, we are not treating every death seriously that occurs of all these older people. Can I just draw attention to a really interesting comment um, that also brings us back to Alva's opening words, which is, um, I wonder whether if we think of age from a rights-based perspective, whether company and touch should be seen as rights given the impact of their withdrawal. Um, how would that change the discourse of self or enforced isolation? Um, I think that's a really important way of rethinking care also, right? That it's not a burden, it's something, it's maybe it's a, maybe, um, yeah, maybe it's a right. Yes, in the Netherlands, there is this very interesting difference between care homes and hospitals, because in care homes are completely locked off from the world outside, and there were even fences around it and to prevent family to really touch hands or even have a chat with their loved ones inside, which is inhumane. It's one of the haunting images I find this crisis. But at the same time, in hospitals, uh, every COVID-19 patient, uh, also all, uh, elderly uh, people, were allowed one visitor a day, and it needed to be the one, the, the, the very same person every day. Uh, he or she came in, had to answer some questions, wash hands, and have all the uh, uh, mouth masks on, and, 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 so, and so forth. But at least there was one person allowed in, and there were no serious consequences of this one visitor. So there is, this, there is a bit of uproar here in the Netherlands about the question, why not in care homes? Why were they so much locked up uh, and uh, so forbidding of the outside world? Whereas in hospitals, this apparently was allowed. So apparently the medical context was preventive enough or it's very cynical in a way. Um, I just there's just one last comment before I hand over to Anna to uh, close the webinar for today. Very final comment uh, from alumni to all panelists. Um, myself, spouse, and friends were all in the chronological age grouping over 70, 80, and 90. You know, we're we're getting used to or we're trying to get our heads around um, uh, being in a sort of restricted uh, uh, type of lockdown. Um, what can the panel suggest for us for surviving? till the end of 2021. Their lives are on hold for at least 18 months while the scientists and the health system get sorted out with therapies, treatment, hospital capacity, and so on. So what can, what can I, I suppose, um, Des, what would you advise? I think we, this sem seminar has perhaps answered it. We need to fight back. Yeah. We need to make the appropriate arguments that protect the heterogeneity, the richness, the worth of life, older lives matter. So um, I think we're, we're all probably a bit shocked. It's like the first time you get mugged. Well, it's time to get up and respond. There's huge intellectual firepower here. I've learned a lot. Um, it's changed my thoughts. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure we've other things from the other panelists. Okay, well, thank you to the, the speakers on the third panel. And now I'm going to hand back to Anna to conclude the session today. Yeah, well, uh, thank you very much uh, for this very rich uh, discussion. I have personally learned a lot and um, I'm beginning to think about the next event that we might like to organize because clearly we have not exhausted this topic by any means. 
so we started with Alva's very uh, thoughtful and provocative reflective statement on her experience, uh, which she had entitled Unheard, Unseen, Untouched. And by doing that, she brought up so many issues which resonated across all, all the uh, panels. And then we moved on to a critical debate on the language used in the debate on aging, which of course, from, for somebody like me from a humanities background matters a lot, the language used. And of course, the images circulated in the media like uh, uh, many of you, I noticed that there's a preponderance of images of body parts, isolated body parts, which is extremely uh, problematic. Uh, we then touched on the crucial issue of agency or the lack of agency, the way in which agency, agency is being stripped away from certain cohorts and, and uh, uh, people in the older age group were stigmatized in this way that they were clearly not deemed to be able to make uh, uh, decisions about their own lives. And from there we moved on to a debate on, on the chrononormativity, a concept which I find very appealing uh, because it, 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 it focuses on the manner in which from a certain, on, from a certain age onwards, um, certain identity markers are being stripped away from people, even though in fact, you know, they can look back on very rich lives and multifaceted lives. That is in itself a very uh, problematic uh, way of looking at aging. And we also touched on generational conflict. Some of you mentioned, uh, actually you described it in terms of generational warfare, the weaponization of children, etc. cetera, uh, in, in this debate. And above all, we, we talked about how societies value life and the, the, the notion of vulnerability. And of course, we did not agree on this because it is a, a complex issue. It ranges the entire spectrum from the existential vulnerability to the ontological vulnerability in Judith Butler's terms to um, uh, the stigmatization of an older age cohort uh, with the term vulnerable. Perhaps that's something we might like to explore more in, 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 in some more detail in, in a later, in a later uh, webinar. The audience has enriched our webinar with excellent questions. They've been coming in all the time. It's been really, really wonderful uh, to engage with the audience. We are sorry that we couldn't filter more, more of your questions. We are all learning uh, as we are doing these webinars. Uh, it's, it's a new format for us all, so please, be forgiving if, if you feel that we haven't sufficiently dealt with your really good questions. We will we'll look into uh, other ways of, of perhaps doing this uh, next time. So um, uh, I really want to thank you all for participating in this. And uh, I would be grateful to the audience if you could send us an email to uh, the UCD Humanities Institute email address giving us some, some feedbacks. And if you have any ideas of further webinars related to this topic, you can also email us. You can find out more about uh, uh, fr the Framing Aging Project uh, uh, through our website. It's, if you Google UCD Framing Aging, you will find the website with further information. And we are building the website uh, with, with, uh, up with more material. So thanks again to all the panelists, to Alva, 
Alva, it's been great to see you. I look forward to hugging you in the not too distant future. And uh, thanks to all of you, I look forward to seeing you hopefully in the autumn, here in autumn, when we will hopefully be able to hold a real seminar on, on framing aging. Thanks very much and bye-bye. <laughs>